Please open your Bibles to Matthew 12. Our passage for today is Matthew 12, verses 38 to 45. And uh, the title for today's message is Believing the Big Lie. Uh, and this is the second part of this message, Believing the Big Lie. For several weeks now, we've been watching and listening as Matthew has explained for us uh, the reasons and the consequences of Israel's rejection of Jesus. It can be hard to understand how a nation as steeped in the Scriptures as the people of Israel could have ever refused to believe in Jesus when there was so much evidence, both scriptural evidence and supernatural evidence through the miracles that Jesus performed, how that nation could, could uh, so much evidence to authenticate His ministry and message, it's hard to understand how that nation could reject Christ. Here in Matthew 11-13, to 13, Matthew explains how that works. He shows us how Israel came to reject Jesus in spite of the overwhelming amount of evidence that accompanied His ministry. And I've entitled this series of messages an Enigmatic Messiah because I think that basically summarizes what we're encountering here. As Matthew explores the crowd's reactions to Jesus, we can see that the people are clearly intrigued by Jesus. They can see that there is a power and authority accompanying Jesus' ministry that is unlike that with any other man that they've ever come across. And not just that, but what Jesus is doing with His power and authority sure makes it look like He's the promised fulfillment of the coming Messiah. The problem is that the message that Jesus declares... It's just so different from what they expected that they're not really sure what to do with Him. How they should respond to Him. Who is this Jesus? That's the question that the people want answered here in Matthew 11-13. And it's a question that is to a large degree shrouded by intrigue and mystery. Unfortunately, as the people fumbled around for an answer to this question, they arrived at the wrong conclusions. They eventually rejected Jesus. They said He wasn't the Messiah. And here in Matthew 11-13, Matthew explains why this was. He shows us why the people rejected Jesus when the truth of His identity was staring them right in the face. And ultimately what Matthew has shown us is that there's no single factor that caused the nation to reject Jesus. The nation's religious assumptions got in the way of their acceptance of Jesus. Jesus was just a little bit too unorthodox for their taste, and they were unwilling to accept that perhaps this was because Jesus knew something more about the Scriptures than they did. Additionally, because Jesus was so unorthodox, many also feared Him. To many, Jesus seemed to be a false teacher bent on leading God's people away from God and into His judgment. They could see His power, but they weren't sure what to make of it or where it came from, and they were fearful that perhaps it was given in order to deceive them and lead the nation astray. Even the relatively quiet nature of Jesus' ministry would have contributed to the nation's rejection of Him. When faced with hostile opposition, Jesus didn't stand His ground and fight as many probably expected the Messiah to do. Instead, Jesus would withdraw away from the conflict. 
And while this should have been what Israel expected of the Messiah, based on what would happen in Israel in the days of Messiah's kingdom, at the same time it meant that there was a kind of quietness that would have followed Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't come in thunder and fire, which is what the people would have expected of the Messiah. He was peaceful. And this would have not only shocked the people, but it also meant that Jesus' ministry was just not as loud and boisterous as it could have been. It wasn't as dramatic as Jesus could have made it, and so many could have very easily missed the significance of what Jesus was doing. We're currently in a section of these chapters that points the finger at the nation's religious leaders. In Matthew 12, 22, Jesus heals, heals a blind and mute demoniac. According to Old Testament prophecy, this was an incredibly clear display of messianic power coming from Jesus. And in the very next verse, verse 23, the crowds respond in amazement, saying, can this be the son of David? The people can see that something is obviously going on with Jesus, and they can perceive that this sign points to Jesus' messianic authority, but they want some sort of affirmation that what they're seeing is what they think they're seeing. And so they ask this question, looking for that affirmation, and presumably from their religious leaders, because that's who answers this question in verse 24. There the scribes and the Pharisees provide their explanation to this exorcism, saying, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Essentially, they say that the only reason why Jesus has any authority over demons is because that authority is derived from Satan himself. And the implication is that Satan has given Jesus this kind of power in order to lead the nation astray. Don't believe your eyes, the religious leaders say. This looks like a good work, but it's not. Satan is at work here. He's trying to deceive you, and Jesus is his instrument. Unfortunately, according to the response that Jesus gives in the following verses, the crowds apparently accept this answer. They are on the verge of belief. They have recognized Jesus' messianic authority with their own eyes. But just as they are at the point of belief, the scribes and the Pharisees swoop in and tell them that Jesus is a fraud who can't be trusted. And the people believe that. And they turn away. They reject Jesus due to the influence of their religious leaders. Of course, this accusation is a monumental lie. And Jesus proves as much in Matthew 12, 25-29. The fact of the matter is that this sign is undeniable evidence to His Messianic authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees know it, but they are intentionally, willfully choosing to lie to the people about what Jesus has done. And the people believe it. They believe that lie. This is another one of the reasons for this generation's rejection of Jesus. It wasn't for lack of evidence. They didn't didn't reject Jesus because they couldn't recognize Him. Rather, it was because they chose to ignore what they knew about Him. The evidence was there, but they chose to turn away from it. And they did this under the influence of their religious leadership who blatantly lied to them about Jesus' identity. But why? Why do the crowds believe this colossal lie? Especially when it's so obviously untrue. 
That's the question I'm going to answer for you this morning in the second part of this message I've entitled, Believing the Big Lie. We can see that the crowds have rejected Jesus because they have believed this lie told to them by their religious leaders. And two weeks ago I showed you what Jesus said would be the consequences to this rejection in the first half of this message. Today I want to show you what Jesus says is the reason why the crowds believe that lie. I'm going to do that from Matthew 12, 38 to 45. And we're going to be zeroing in on verses 43 to 45 in particular. Jesus largely explains the consequences to the crowd's unbelief in verses 38 to 42 of this passage. Again, we looked at that part of the passage two weeks ago. But Jesus gets into the motives for this unbelief in verses 43 to 45. And that's the part of the passage that we're going to dig into today. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. And once again, we're going to be focusing in on the last three verses of this passage in particular, verses 43 to 45. So pay especially a close attention when we get there. Matthew 12, 38 to 45. Matthew says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at at the judgment with this generation to condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I've already alluded to the fact that this passage can be broken down into two sections. Jesus has already explained the reasons and the consequences for the Pharisees' choice to commit their lie back in verses 22 to 37. Here in this passage, he's addressing the crowds. He speaks of an evil and adulterous generation in verse 39. He addresses this generation in verses 41 and 42. He's addressing the crowds now. And in the first half of this passage, he explains the consequences of the crowd's decision to believe the Pharisees' blasphemy of the Spirit, saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so also will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's the consequences. Of their unbelief. We talked about the meaning of this statement just a couple of weeks ago. Essentially, Jesus is saying that because the people have believed the scribes and the Pharisees, there is no longer any hope for them. Just as Jesus said back in verses 31 to 37 that the Pharisees' blasphemy of the Spirit meant that the Pharisees would not ever be forgiven of their sin because it is is a sign of the irreparable hardness of their heart. It indicates that there is absolutely no sign 
that Jesus can give them that will lead them to repentance, and so they will never be forgiven. Just as Jesus said that to the Pharisees, so also does the crowd's willingness to follow the scribes and the Pharisees seal their fate. There's no more proof that Jesus can give them that is going to be clearer than what He has already done. The issue isn't a lack of evidence when it comes to believing in Jesus. It is their fallen, sinful hearts. They have chosen to reject Jesus at this point. And no amount of evidence is going to fix that. In other words, if they can't believe now at this point, then they will not believe no matter what sort of evidence is provided. Because the amount of evidence isn't really the issue. The issue is something else. It's something going on in the hearts of the people. And until that is changed, the people simply will not accept Jesus' authority. So the scribes and the Pharisees are coming, claiming that they need more proof, and Jesus says that's false. No more proof is needed. In fact, on the Day of Judgment, both the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba will testify to that fact. They both had far less testimony to God's Word than what this generation had in the supernatural works of the Holy Spirit, and those people believed. Therefore, in the Day of Judgment, Jesus says, they will rise up against this generation to testify to the fact that they did have enough evidence. No more proof is needed. And so now the only sign that this generation will receive is Jesus' resurrection from the grave after three days in the earth. Jesus' fate is essentially sealed at this point. The people will not be able to repent and accept His kingdom. Instead, it is now certain that they will eventually reject and kill Him. So there is not going to be this continued attempt to bring the nation to repentance through the performance of additional signs and wonders. They've had enough. It's already been determined that they will reject Him based on their willingness to listen to the lies of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the only sign they will receive going forward is Jesus' resurrection from the dead after three days. Jesus calls this sign His resurrection. And not just His resurrection, but really His resurrection after three days in particular. He calls it the sign of Jonah. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well. Jesus' resurrection from the dead after three days is not the fulfillment of some prophecy that was predicted when Jonah was swallowed by the fish. It's not a sign in that sense. It's not proof through the fulfillment of a prophecy that pointed forward. Rather, the resurrection is going to point backward to Jonah. That's what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the way He is resurrected is going to remind the people of Jonah and the fish. It's going to point back to that event. And it's going to do this as a warning of God's impending wrath. The people have rejected God's Messiah and they will be judged for that rejection and this will be made evident when Jesus rises from the dead after three days. Just as Jonah was a prophet to Nineveh, proclaiming destruction, impending wrath, when the people see Jesus rise after three days, they're to understand what they've done and that God's wrath is near. So that's the first half of this passage. Jesus explains the consequences that will come upon this generation for their unbelief through this discussion of the sign of Jonah. 
The second half of this passage occurs in verses 43 to 45 when Jesus pivots away from that discussion of Jonah and says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So what's going on with these verses? That's a very strange statement that Jesus makes here. What's Jesus' point? What's the idea that he's trying to get across? What's this passage about? Well, probably the first thing that we should observe about this passage before we get too far is that this passage is not about demonology. In other words, the primary force of this passage is not to explain the existence and activity of demons. Jesus talks about a demon in this passage, but that's not really his purpose. He's not here to talk about the metaphysics and and what have you of demons. And I say that because I think that's probably what attracts most people to this passage. Again, this is a peculiar statement that Jesus is giving here. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the spiritual realm. We certainly know that angels and demons exist, for instance, but when it comes to understanding what a day is like in the life of an angel or a demon, when it comes to understanding what they do all the time or even what their desires and motives are, like like how they think, the scriptures are largely silent about all of that. And we can't exactly intuit our way to an answer about these things either. We don't know what it's like to exist in a purely spiritual, non-physical realm. Even trying to understand what that is is enough to kind of try to to make your head hurt. So there's really no way for us to understand this realm, this spiritual realm, apart from what the Bible reveals to us about it. But the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the details of it. And we're naturally kind of curious about this realm. I mean, the Bible tells us that there are other intelligent beings out there besides ourselves, but who exist on a completely different plane than our own. And that's naturally going to drive our curiosity. We want to know what life is like for one of these creatures. But the scripture doesn't give us a whole lot to go with in order to understand that. So when you have Jesus talking about a demon going out of a man and passing through waterless places, our ears kind of perk up and we think, what does he mean by that? Where does the demon go? And what does this tell us about the nature and work of angels and demons? But that's not really the point here, is it? What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about this generation of Israelites. That's the subject here. This is essentially a parable. And the punchline is, so also it will be with this evil generation. The whole account with the demon is just an analogy. It's an illustration used to make a point about this generation of Israelites who have refused to accept his message. So if you're coming to this passage trying to understand and explain the world of demons, you're kind of missing the point. That's not what's going on here. And so this really isn't a great place to go in order to understand the demonic realm. 
Yes, I think it's safe to assume that any analogy is ultimately going to be derived from factual principles. Otherwise, it's a poor analogy. The whole idea behind the use of an analogy is that the truths contained in the analogy parallel the concept being described. So if the illustration or analogy isn't in some way rooted in real and easily understood truth, it's not going to be of much help in explaining the difficult-to-understand concept, right? So don't get me wrong. I think what Jesus is saying here about demons describes real facts about the demonic realm. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume that Jesus is giving us a full or comprehensive description of even this aspect of the demonic realm, of what happens after an exorcism. Because that's not what he's trying to do here. He's not trying to teach the crowds about demons. He's trying to teach what is true. He's trying to use what is true about demons to teach the crowds something about themselves. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it's tough to build a theological system about demons from this passage. Like if you come up to me after the service, and I assume these are types of questions that come up in this passage. This is why I say this. I just want to get this out of the way. But if you come up to me after the service and ask me, so what does Jesus mean by waterless places? Like, is he talking about a desert? Is he talking about the wilderness? After all, that's where Satan tempted Jesus, right? It was in the wilderness. In the book of Leviticus, it says that the scapegoat is sent out into the wilderness to Azazel. I mean, is that what that means? Like, when demons are exercised, are they expelled to places where there are no people? Or are waterless places possibly a description of some aspect of the spiritual realm? Is it, is it hell? Like, what is that? If you come up to me after the service asking me about waterless places, you know what I'll say? They're waterless places. That's the most I can tell you. That's about as far as I could go because that's as far as Jesus goes. The point is, the demon is not in a body and he doesn't particularly like it. And that's all you're really supposed to take away from that point. If you ask me, how is it that before... The demon was in the person by himself, but then after he finds the house swept and put in order, there's apparently room for seven demons. Like, what's that describing about how demonic possession works? What's going on in the person that after they're swept up, like, what does that mean? And then how can seven demons now be more accommodated than before? If you ask me that, you know what I'll say? I have no clue. I don't know. In terms of the metaphysical realm, I have no idea how only one demon lived in the man before, but afterwards the home is made suitable for seven demons. But I can tell you that apparently that kind of situation can happen, and the language that Jesus uses here to describe it tells you something about the condition of this particular generation of Israelites. So depending on your interest in demons, I know that can be a pretty disappointing answer but that's the approach i think you have to take with this passage jesus isn't describing the demonic realm here that's not his point it's not his point to to instruct us about the life and activity of demons rather he's using a couple of truths about demons to describe the state of this generation of unbelieving israelites so then if that's the case what can we learn about this generation of Israel from this passage. Once again, this is really a parable that we're seeing here, which is to say that this is a 
this is a fictional story or an analogy being told by Jesus in order to illustrate a particular truth or to teach a lesson about that truth. And we can see the truth that Jesus is teaching, the moral of the story, so to speak, in verse 45. When Jesus says that after this demon returns, quote, the last state of that person is worse than the first. And then concludes, so also will it be with this evil generation. So we can see that the analogy that Jesus is making is between this generation and the exorcism and return of this demon. And he's saying that a previous condition in something has been in some way made worse through the expulsion and return of this evil influence. And really, if we're paying attention to the analogy, it's not just that the previous condition has been made worse through the return of this evil influence, but it, ha- it was a worsened state made possible by the cleaning up of the evil influence's home, the demon's home. So that's the general outline of this parable. There is an evil influence that has been, that has been expelled, However, eventually it decides to go back, and when it goes back, it finds that its original living conditions have actually been made more accommodating. And so it returns with even more power and influence than when it first left. The moral, then, is that this cleaning up, whatever it is, and we'll get to it today, we'll see what that is, this cleaning up actually made the man worse, not better. And please don't lose sight of this. That's actually what we're building to here this morning. We're trying to understand the point of this parable and what it tells us about the crowds, and that all comes back to the moral of this story, which is this idea that the cleaning up of the man made his later condition worse. It made him more susceptible to evil, actually, than his previous condition. That's the lesson that Jesus is teaching here. The cleaning up of the man worsens his condition not improves it. And this is all being applied to, compared with, this evil generation of Israelites. So this raises the question, who is the generation in this parable? Clearly they're either the man, or they're the demon, right? Jesus gets to the end of this story and says, so it will be, also, uh, so also it will be with this evil generation. And that would imply that this generation is either the man, or the demon in this story? Which is it? And I would imagine that just instinctively, you would say that this generation is the man in the parable, not the demon, and you would be right. I think it's safe to make that assumption. If you set this parable in context, Jesus is speaking to, quote, this evil and adulterous generation in verse 39, who has so stubbornly rejected the truth that they will not receive any more signs except the sign of Jonah. Jesus is condemning this generation for the stubbornness of their unbelief. This would seem to imply that they are the ones whose condition has been worsened by an evil influence. They were obviously bad before, but after this influence has been removed, something to make them more susceptible to its power has happened. And now they're so bad off, they're so bad off, that they cannot even accept the Messiah 
when he's standing there in their presence, performing unparalleled demonstrations of power in the Spirit right before their eyes. This is even right grammatically, this idea that they're the, they're the man, not the demon. Jesus says, so also it will be with this generation. And that leads us to ask, what is it in that statement? If the subject of the sentence is undefined, what is it referring to? And the best bet in that scenario is always to look back to the preceding context and look to the last thing that was referred to. And in this instance, that would be the person. Jesus says, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And then immediately follows that with, so also it will be with this evil generation. And the natural referent there goes back to the person. That's why you probably instinctively assume that the generation in this parable is the person. That's what the conclusion, that's the conclusion that the grammar drives you to. So Jesus is talking about something that has happened in this generation, some influence that has come over this generation that has made their condition worse than their previous state. What is that? Who is the demon in this story? You could say that Jesus is maybe talking about real, actual demons. After all, Jesus has just exercised a blind and mute demoniac. He's been doing that sort of thing throughout his ministry. He's been casting out many demons. Perhaps he's warning the people that after they reject him, they're going to be made more susceptible to demonic influence. Like after he's done all this demonic healing... He's warning them that if they reject him, the demon's going to come back and make it worse. But I think there's a couple problems with this conclusion. First, I think we need to remember that this is analogy. Jesus is speaking in metaphor here, and this means that just as the man in this story is representative of another truth, another reality, which would be this evil generation, so also would it be logical to conclude that the demon represents another truth of a different sort of influence, not a demonic influence. And second, you have to ask yourself, if this is a reference to actual demonic influence, then when did demons come back upon Israel in force? I mean, if Jesus is warning about greater demonic influence down the road, then certainly there has to be some aspect of fulfillment to this prediction. I don't know really when you would find that. You would also have to conclude that somehow Israel cleaned itself up after Jesus' exorcism of the demons in their return. Again, there's just too many questions that don't seem to have answers to conclude that Jesus is talking about an actual return of the demons that he's been exercising in Israel. So then what is the evil influence? Think about it. Jesus is using Israel's rejection of his ministry and the power of the Spirit to talk about how an evil influence has made their condition worse than it was previously. And who would that be referring to? Who has led Israel to reject Jesus' ministry and the power of the Spirit? Or to put it this way, who has made Israel spiritually blind and mute? Don't forget the context for this parable. Jesus has just exercised this blind and mute demoniac. This is a man who cannot see or speak. And by the end of this whole encounter, as we arrive at this parable, we can see that this man really represents this evil generation of Israelites, doesn't he? By the end of this encounter, we can see that this demoniac is the perfect picture of this generation who cannot hear or respond to God's word, can't we? 
Well, who led them into that state? Who made this generation as spiritually blind and mute as this demoniac was? It was the religious leaders, was it not? They're the demon in this story. They're the evil influence who have led Israel into this worse condition. They're the ones possessing Israel. They're the ones controlling the nation and leading them into spiritual blindness. Do you understand? Jesus is turning the tables here. The scribes and the Pharisees have accused Jesus of being an instrument of Satan, and Jesus' response is to say, is to say actually, you're the ones doing Satan's work. You brood of vipers, you sons of snakes. You are the ones misleading God's people, not me. I think we tend to overlook this point. When we read the New Testament, we're tempted to lump in the crowds with the nation's religious leaders and basically assume that they are each equally responsible for Israel's rejection of Jesus. And Jesus didn't see it this way. The crowds would be held accountable for their rejection of Christ, yes. We saw that two weeks ago when Jesus told the crowds that they would be judged by God for their failure to respond to His message. However, Jesus also understood that the crowds were responding to the influence of their religious leaders. And in this sense, the religious leaders were especially accountable for the nation's rejection of His message. We saw this last week in our message from Luke 12, 1-7. In the preceding context of those verses, Jesus tells the lawyers, He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered hindered those who were entering. Jesus is actually going to make a similar statement in Matthew 23. There He denounces the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees one last time. In that denunciation, Jesus launches into a series of woe statements that are intended to reprimand the scribes and the Pharisees for all the evil in their ministry. And the very first reprimand that He issues, the very first one that He says to the scribes and the Pharisees, in that instance, He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter, who would enter, to go in. Make no mistake, Israel's religious leaders were very much at the root of the nation's rejection of Christ. And Jesus acknowledges as much in His ministry. And just so you know, this isn't something that only happened during Jesus' ministry either. This was a consistent issue throughout the Old Testament as well. And God promised that one day He would replace Israel's false shepherds with His one true shepherd, the son of David, who would guide and protect His people. We see an example of this in Jeremiah 23. If you would, please turn there and read along with me. Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah 23. As God condemns Judah and announces their coming judgment and exile in the book of Jeremiah, He speaks against the nation's religious leaders and holds them partly responsible for the wrath that He is about to inflict on the nation. He says in Jeremiah 23, 1-6, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of My pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, He says, You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. 
Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be, de- he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. A similar statement comes up in Ezekiel 34 as well. If you would, please turn over there. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel was called into ministry after the first of Judah's deportations into exile, and he too calls the nation's leaders to account for the judgment they were experiencing, saying this in Ezekiel 34, 1-10. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now look at what he says here. So they were scattered. Again, because of the religious leaders. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding uh, the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. And if you look, once again, God promises a son of David who would replace the corrupting influence of these religious leaders, saying in verses 20 to 24 of the same chapter, look there, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between them the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So we can see how the Old Testament pointed the figure at Israel's religious leaders, how it held them responsible for Israel's judgment in exile. And there's even other places we could go in the Old Testament to prove this. For example, the prophet Micah says in Micah 3, 9-12, let me just read this to you. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come among us. 
And he says, therefore, because of you, and that's the religious leaders. He says, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the consistent testimony of the Old Testament. Israel and Judah were misled and deceived by, the, by their corrupt leadership. And for this reason, they were sent off into exile in judgment. And if you want to know how Israel's second condition will be, future tense, how their second condition will be worse than the first, this will help you understand it. Israel was already an object of God's wrath once, right? When he carried them off into exile. Well, now the nation has become even worse under the influence of these corrupt religious leaders. Please don't miss this point. I mean, the people of Israel were bad in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? I mean, the description of what the people were like in those days, it's pretty horrible. They were caught up in idolatry. They disobeyed God's law. They ignored the sacrifices and they tried to deceive God by offering up hypocritical sacrifices. They were bad in the Old Testament. But guess what? They weren't half as bad as this evil generation was who rejected Jesus. This may be hard to believe. After all, after the exile, Israel sort of repented, didn't they? I mean, we talked about this before. When they came back into the land after the exile, they reformed themselves. They started observing things like Sabbath, which they had neglected before. They performed the prescribed sacrifices. They were incredibly zealous in their persecution of idolatry. They cleaned themselves up, didn't they? On the outside, they didn't look half as bad as the generations that God sent into exile. But do you know the difference between this generation and those previous generations? Those previous generations, as wicked as they were, as disobedient as they were, they could still perceive a prophet of God when he was sent to them. And though they might have been disobedient to that prophet for a time, they could still eventually acknowledge and recognize the word of the Lord when it came. But not this generation. I mean, to to take the worst generation of Israel. What's the, what's the worst generation of Israel that you could possibly imagine? Who is the most stubborn generation that you can think of in the Old Testament? And, and think of this in terms of who was the one that received the most proof from, uh, from God that any generation of Israel had received and yet still couldn't find the faith to obey God's commands? That would have to be the first generation that came out of Egypt, wouldn't it? There are perhaps some other generations that could rival that first generation in terms of disobedience, some that were maybe even more sinful. But in terms of evidence, there's none that could have rivaled that generation. They had the plagues, they had the passage through the Red Sea, they had the manna from heaven, and that they still couldn't find the faith to obey the word of the Lord and enter into the promised land when they were commanded. That was a pretty stubborn generation. To have all of that evidence and still not respond, that's pretty stubborn. But as stubborn as that generation was, you know what they didn't do? They didn't say Moses had a demon. They didn't accuse Moses of being a henchman of Satan. 
They may have been a faithless generation. They may not have trusted God to deliver them. But they could still recognize the significance of God's signs and wonders and acknowledge His prophet. Well, here is Jesus performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And make no mistake, something greater than Moses is here. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees say, He has a demon. And the people fall in line and believe them. As much as this generation has cleaned themselves up, there is no doubt that they are actually worse. They are more stubborn, more hard-hearted than all the previous generations of Israel. God had thrown Israel out of the land, and not just Israel, but their religious leaders as well. And part of the idea was to bring both Israel and their leaders to repentance and purge them of this wicked influence. And yet by the, by the time we arrive to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the evil religious leaders have even more control than they did before, and the people have become even harder as a result. They can't even bring themselves to recognize God's Messiah when they can see and understand the works that testify to Him before their very eyes. Well, if God already expressed His wrath against this previous generation with judgment and exile... What do you think he's going to do with this exceedingly evil and adulterous generation of Israelites? Yes, indeed, Israel's second state will be worse than the first. There's no doubt about that. They were already slow to believe before and God judged them severely for it. How much more will his wrath come against them for this exceedingly great stubbornness which they are expressing through the rejection of no less than the Son of God himself there present among them performing signs and wonders before them in the power of the Spirit. So once again we can see the consequences that will come upon this generation for their rejection of Christ. It's not spelled out real explicitly here but it's certainly expressed that they have entered into a more wicked state that we can presume will result in greater, a greater demonstration of the wrath of God. But what has caused this stubbornness? What has produced this result? Does Jesus tell us anything in the parable that explains how this nation arrived in this worst state? He does. And you see it in verses 40 to 45 when Jesus says that after the demon is, is expelled, he, de- he decides to return He finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes back and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. So once again, it isn't entirely clear what's happening here on a spiritual level. Jesus doesn't explain what is swept up about the man and how it allows for more demons to come in and possess him. And to my knowledge, there isn't any other scripture that clearly explains that point metaphysically. But regardless, we can still understand Jesus' point. The cleaning up of the man actually made him more accommodating for demonic possession. So that being said, what does this tell us about this generation? It says that there was some sort of cleaning up that happened in Israel that made them more accommodating to the influence of their wicked leaders. 
And what is Jesus referring to here? What is that act of cleaning up? Well, if we're reading the whole account in light of God's previous judgment and exile of Israel, then I think we can conclude that it was Israel's superficial repentance that brought about this result. Once again, Israel was very disobedient to God's law when he sent them into exile, and God held her leaders accountable for this. When God allowed Israel to return home, they expressed a kind of repentance by putting away their idols and walking in incredibly strict obedience to God's commands. The problem, however, is that as good as as that kind of repentance might have looked, it wasn't the kind of repentance that God was looking for. Israel started observing religious traditions very strictly, but God explained in places like Isaiah 1 and Hosea 6 that it was compassion that he was looking for, not sacrifice. This is something they were, they were severely devoid of in their practice of the law. We saw that in Matthew 12, right? Even further, it wasn't just observance to traditions that God ever desired, but worship. I mean, that's what God told them in places like Deuteronomy 6.5, doesn't he? He told the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That was what God desired from Israel. And if their history told them anything, it was that they couldn't provide that kind of worship on their own. That's why God promised to make a new covenant with them in Jeremiah 31 and to send His Spirit over onto them in Ezekiel 36. The truth is that if the exile was to teach Israel anything... It was that they couldn't provide the worship that God demanded from them. If Israel had learned the lesson that God intended to teach them in the exile, then they would have confessed their sin to God and begged Him to to show them mercy by forgiving them of their sin and granting them His Holy Spirit. Instead, they determined to clean themselves up by turning to the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. The nation did not come to God in true repentance and humility and faith. Rather, they became moral. They became moral. They turned to moralism, meaning that they tried to be good people. And they did this thinking that if they could just do the commands that God told them to do, if they could could just strictly observe the law, if they could behave right, then God wouldn't get angry with them anymore. But unfortunately, when they did this, they actually made themselves incredibly susceptible to the corrupt influence of wicked religious leaders. I explained how this works in our message from Luke 12, 1-7 last week. There we saw that when a person begins to turn to merely external displays of worship and self-righteousness, they open themselves up to the attacks of the hypocrite who will use their imperfections to intimidate and bully people into their standard of righteousness, which glorifies the hypocrite rather than God. The hypocrite uses fear to shout down the truth and to exalt his own self-righteousness. And in doing this, he convinces the people that what God wants is external righteousness, not internal transformation. 
And in fact, when the hypocrite is able to finally create this sort of environment, which tacitly approves external righteousness, then he can not only use fear to gain a following, but flattery as well. He will tell his followers, once he's gained this kind of influence, wow, you're looking good. God is really pleased with you. He likes what you're doing. And the person will listen because they want that assurance that they can't seem to find in their works on their own. So the hypocrite is able to deceive the self-righteous through their moralism, telling them that they don't need to change anything, telling them that God is really pleased with them, when in fact God is still angry with that person for failing to come to Him in humility and dependence and faith. If you think of all the reasons that Matthew has shown us for Israel's rejection of Jesus, you can see how all of this has happened with Israel. By this point in Israel's history, the people were unable to respond to Jesus and John's calls to repentance because they just couldn't accept the idea that maybe there was something about the law that they didn't understand. They were like spoiled children who demanded that John and Jesus play by their rules. The pride produced by their moral standards, which was reinforced by the scribes and the Pharisees, made them unable to conceive of the possibility that maybe they didn't know everything about the Bible. Maybe they didn't really understand what God expected of them. Maybe they didn't really understand what the character of the Messiah would look like. Maybe they were the ones who needed to conform to expectations, not John and Jesus. In addition, John and Jesus preached a message of repentance, and the people's self-righteous moralism made it very hard to accept that perhaps, just perhaps, maybe such a message was intended for them. They couldn't understand how Jesus could accept a sinner like Matthew while rejecting the law-abiding scribes and Pharisees. And the reason was because moralism blinded them to the truth. They were doing everything that God asked them to do, right? So how could Jesus be the Messiah if He was telling them to repent? They couldn't see their own sin anymore. Because they were faithful to mark off a list of moralistic actions that told them they were okay. And that the Pharisees told them, said that they were okay. And not just this, but can you see, you can, you can see the religious leaders attempt to expose Jesus in the synagogue. You can see them try to plot against him after he humiliates them. You can see the specter of this threat and their denial of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Them telling the crowds, if you accept Jesus, then God is going to get angry with you and cast you off under a yoke of slavery like he did before. And you can see how the fear and intimidation made possible by their external righteousness, could be used to scare the people away from Jesus. Like we saw last week with the blind man in John 9, they could tell the people things like, if you don't tell us what we want to hear, then we're going to kick you out of the synagogue as a heretic. You're going to be cut off from your people and even from your own family. Now you don't want that, do you? Understand, Israel made this sort of situation possible by turning to a moralistic standard that gave the scribes and the Pharisees that kind of power. Their own moralism produced that culture of fear which would lead them away from the truth. So then how can a Christian, how can a church 
guard against allowing this type of thing from happening in their own lives and in the lives of their church? How can they keep such corrupt and wicked men out of positions of power and authority that will allow them to deceive and manipulate, manipulate God's people and blind them to the truth? It is by intentionally and resolutely refusing to allow moralism to creep into the church. A body of believers simply must commit themselves to take a stand against moralism whenever it begins to pop its head up. Because if they do not, then they make way for the spiritual bullies and hypocrites to come in and control them, and to lie to them, and to manipulate them, and to even eventually destroy their spiritual health and vigor. And this will ultimately require a body of believers to remember at least two foundational truths. First, they must remember that they have been called by that they have been uh, they have not been called by Christ. They must remember that they have not been called by Christ to be merely good. Meaning, they must understand that Jesus doesn't call us to be good, not in the way that we think of good. He doesn't call us to conform to some sort of moral standard that allows us to find acceptance with God. I think this is really what's in our minds when we think of being good. That what we mean is that we must be good enough. We must pass, must pass some standards, get ourselves up above some standard of goodness that allows God to take delight in us. Jesus doesn't call us to be good. Not in this sense. Rather, He calls on us to lean on Him in dependence and faith to be our good. I am not good. You are not good. And we can never be truly good, at least not on our own. Jesus, though, He is good, and it is only when we are clothed in His righteousness alone through faith that God can look on us as good. So let's get this straight. Christians are not called to be good. We are called to worship. We are, called, we are declared good in Christ. We are accepted by God. And in God's grace, God calls us to rest in Him and delight in Him. In fact, He doesn't just call us to do that. He requires it of us. We are not good. We declare Jesus to be good. And God to be good. This is what we're called to. This is the righteousness that God demands. Not mere goodness. But worship. He calls us to take joy in Him. This is the first thing that a church must remember to avoid moralism. It must remember that God does not call us to be merely moral. He calls us to worship Him and to rest in Him. And the second thing that a church must remember is that we cannot meet this demand on our own. This call to worship, we can't do this on our own. This is the thing, it's it's not hard to be moral. It's not hard to be good. Just change your actions. That's a relatively easy thing to do, but God doesn't want mere morality. He wants worship springing up from the heart. That's what really condemns you before God. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. You don't just do sinful things, you are a sinner. Like apart from Christ, at the core, who you are, you hate God. That is what condemns you, not your actions. So you can change your actions, but again, God requires more than that. He wants worship, He wants you to delight in Him. How can you make yourself do that? 
Sure, it's easy to change your actions, but how do you change your heart? How do you make yourself love something you don't love? You don't. You can't do it. And this is why you need Christ. You need Him not only so that you can be forgiven of your sins, you need Him to transform you into the worshiper of God that He calls you to be. You can't meet this demand by God on your own, but through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you can be made new. So if a church can remember these two things, first, that God calls us to worship, not morality, and second, that worship is something that we cannot provide on our own, then they can keep moralism from creeping into their church. And if they can keep moralism from creeping in, then they should be able to stay clear of the power and influence of corrupt leadership who would lead them away from Christ. After all, if you remember these two points, it can only but drive you to Christ. And not only that, but it will quickly expose anyone who would point you to anything other than Christ. Of course, this raises the question, how does a church do this practically? How does it act, what does it actually look like to resist moralistic creep into the life of the church? And there's a lot to say in this regard, and uh, we're not going to cover that here this morning. We're going to talk about it tonight when we get back together at 6 o'clock. And I would strongly encourage you to come back tonight to join us in that discussion as we try to get more specific in our application of this principle. But in the meantime, let's close by praying that God would protect us from moralism in our body. We can see the consequences of moralism. It's deadly dangerous. So we must avoid this mistake. But the way that we do this is not by making ourselves clean. It's not by making ourselves clean, changing our actions. So we're running to our Father and running to His Son, Jesus Christ, and asking Him to protect us, to wash us, and to use the Spirit to transform us into the genuine worshipers that He's called us to be. The answer is grace. Turning to God and asking for His grace. So let's do that as we go to Him in prayer this morning. Let's pray.